all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Rachel. I'm David. <laughs> and this is All Bad Things. <laughs> and welcome, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> Do you like that one? Uh, no. no. <laughs> you just uh, found it mildly entertaining. I'm uh, indifferent to, it, to that one. <laughs> um, follow us Insta, Twitter, Facebook at All Bad Things Pod. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Discord discussion. No, our Discord group and our Facebook discussion. Group. group. <laughs> and you can find us on all your favorite social media platforms. Well, no, we just did that one. Uh, podcast. podcast platforms. There you go. <laughs> we'll get it straight some one of these weeks. We just had a very big dinner. <laughs> yes, we did. So we're a little sluggish at the moment. <laughs> also, we're recording this on Wednesday of my first week back to traditional employment. So There you go. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. far, so good. Yes, very good. <laughs> it's just, um, forgot a lot about traditional employment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that I'm being reminded of very quickly. Like meetings and stupid shit like that. <laughs> no, I'm not jaded yet. I can't be jaded on day three. No, I know. It'll take a little bit, but you'll get back there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what you drinking? I'm just drinking a can of dry right now. There's, <laughs> I like have no room for a beer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't. Well, they gave us like a gallon of drink at most. As, as well, <laughs> Like yes. the Parks and Rec episode where they kept get, showing them bigger and bigger. Uh, apparently, as we learned in the UK, like a large is the equivalent of a US small. In I think it's sizes. even. I think it's even smaller than that. Maybe smaller yeah. than a small. Uh huh. So it got me to thinking: What is a small over in the UK? Is it like a Dixie cup? <laughs> Basically, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, it's there's a vast difference. Yeah, in drink sizes, I am drinking a uh, Wicked Weed Watermelon Dragon Fruit Burst. It's very good. Session sour. Mm-hmm. It is good. It is good. One of the better sours. Yeah, yeah, it is, and one of the better Wicked Weeds. Frankly, I'm not the biggest fan of Wicked no, Weed. No, yeah, they're okay. Yeah. So they're originally out of Asheville, although, well, no, they're they're still out of Asheville. They mm-hmm. just are now. They're Anheuser-Busch now, I think. I think they are. Yeah. A subsidiary. Yeah. But yeah, the brewery is probably still there in Asheville, I would guess. Oh, yeah. And then they have the um, Funkatorium, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Ha. <sighs> so what have we today? Well, we know what we have today yes. based on last week. Yes. We so, have part two yes. of the 1967 Wilcox Expedition, script courtesy of Nicole. Yes. Uh, who's visiting Alaska this month, so we should get some pretty cool pictures. Yes, definitely. Um, and we do have pictures for this episode today. I need to remember to show you as we go. So, can you recap our previous episode? What happened? <laughs> I know. We, you know why I'm asking you, right? Because I don't specifically remember. No, that's should not we true. really say that? Like, <laughs> No. No, that's not true. I do remember, in the the highlight of the previous episode for me. We didn't really get into a whole lot. Was the letters? Last, yeah. <laughs> the passive aggressive notes, mm. which were amazing. Uh, do you remember those? Yes, I do. Yes. Okay. 
Um, we basically just learned a lot about, well, just listen to the previous episode. I guess maybe I should have too. No. <laughs> um, but anyway, we are in the midst of the hike. Not hike. Expedition. It's a little more kind of Kind of the same thing, but... Yeah. So we're, the things have started, but apparently are going to go very wrong, considering this is the deadliest... Uh, climbing accent in U.S. history. U.S. history, right? The deadliest climbing disaster in the United States. Yes. Okay. So. So, okay. We had... <laughs> we're just, uh, yeah, we're just notch. on our game tonight. Top notch. Okay. So, none of the guys like each other, apparently. Right. And they're also relative strangers. The last thing... Well, we... that's the that's the other thing, is they don't really know each other. Mm-hmm. So, that that could lend itself to be a bit of a problem. You would think you would want camaraderie. Yeah. In uh, any dangerous Especially situation. Especially in this... Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So, uh, Russell... Um... Was... Okay, so hold on. <laughs> Yeah, just pick up where you need to pick up from. I just want to really quick refresh, because this will be relevant. I Mm want to refresh us on the people on the expedition, just real quick. Just the names, Um, if I can find them. Yes, okay. So we have Joe Wilcox, who's 24, Steve Taylor, 23, Mark McLaughlin, 24, Jerry Clark, 31, Anshul Schiff, 30, Hank Janes, 25, Dennis Letcherhand, 23, Walt Taylor, 24, John Russell, 23, Howard Snyder, 22, Paul Schlichter, 22, and Jerry Lewis, that's right, Mm -hmm. not the comedian, a different one, who is 30. Okay, I'm going to keep this here so that I can refer back to this. So, apparently, John Russell was being a bit of a dick. Um, But anyway, uh, (laughs) they're continuing. Uh... And they remember they didn't. They had inadequate um, gear, mm-hmm. inadequate like shovels and picks and stuff like that. Um, and they left. They left some of their gear behind. So, but now it is in like modern days. It's it's mandatory for climbing Denali. But anyway, if you want the whole story, go listen to the previous episode. We shall continue. So once the expedition got beyond Camp Two which is something I forget about climbing, is that there are, like, base Mm -hmm. camps. Yep. I don't know why I forget that, but... The glaciers they had to climb became very heavily crevassed, which only carried an increased risk of avalanche. And we talked about crevasses in the Mount Hood disaster. You remember that one? Where they fell down that massive crevasse, like it was the domino effect. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. One danger of a crevasse is that snow can hide it very well, with the only sign of one uh, hidden is a slight depression in the snow. While making their way to Camp 3, Lewis, that'd be Jerry Lewis, fell into a large crevasse that he hadn't noticed while poking around a smaller crevasse that he had. Snyder and Steve Taylor dug their axes into the ice. Snyder's axe not penetrating far, but Steve Taylor's holding fast, stopping Lewis's fall and leaving him suspended above a giant ice cavern with a lake at the bottom. Damn. Yeah. Using a pulley system, they pulled Lewis, his pack, and his axe out of the crevasse. Ironically, it was the man who the Colorado team had felt was not competent whose actions saved Lewis. Hmm. Remember, Mm -hmm. they, they were like of two teams, but none of them really knew each other. Yeah. 
Most of this is not easy to pin down in terms of date, but by July 4th, 1967, the two rope teams made their final trip to Camp 2 to take their final supplies up to Camp 3, and some of the climbers set out for Camp 4 the same day. On July 5th, Wilcox, Russell, Snyder, and Walt Taylor... Oh, okay. I was like, there must be another Taylor, because Nicole kept saying Steve Taylor, and now, of course, there's Walt Taylor, so she couldn't just say Taylor. Past the ridge known as Karsten's Notch, up beyond the Muldrow Glacier and near Karsten's Ridge, described as a narrow spine of snow-covered ice. Each of the men in the Wilcox expedition... Would have, ha- would have to climb the ridge multiple times, as beyond it would lie Camp 5. This actually reminds me a lot of the Mount Hood disaster, because they had this, the, oh, what was it called? The Sawback Ridge or Hogsback Ridge or whatever. Very similar, like this really narrow ridge. Uh, on July 8th, the trail between Camp 4 and Camp 5 had to be rebroken following snowfall. The two-mile Karsten's Ridge had a four that has a 4,000 foot or 1,220 meter elevation increase over two miles or 3.2 kilometers. The strenuous and repetitive nature of this climb once test once again tested the group num- members. Russell accused Schiff of not pulling his weight. Russell's a real mixer here. And Clark jumped to his defense, pointing out that Schiff was initially intended to conduct the science experiments on the Muldrow Glacier and hadn't trained to climb at this altitude. I do have a question of why would you climb to that altitude? If you haven't been trained for it, yeah. Yeah. It's like the idiots who uh, climb, uh, we, we watch that real sports. Like these amateur people climb what? Everest? Was it Everest? I think it was Everest. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, I'm an amateur climber. I'm just going to climb the toughest mountain in the world. And get in big trouble. Or yeah. die. Or die. Mm-hmm. Or, or kill, kill my Sherpa. Sherpa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've exactly. got millions of dollars, so why not? So it doesn't matter. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, the, like, the, the, that makes no sense to me. I don't all. get it either. Like, if you're not trained to do something that could wind up killing you, that I, like, I don't get it. Because well, even... that's when it's just, that's not when it's being ballsy or risky or, that's just when no. it's being stupid. Yes. I mean, really, that's what this comes down to. It's being ill-prepared. Yeah. Like, imagine if someone who had run a 5K <clears throat> was like, oh, now I can run a marathon. Yeah, it's, it's completely it's like, different things. Eventually, if you train <laughs> yeah. for it, maybe, but not just because you did this little thing or this not as intense thing, you know. And people who run marathons are stupid, too. <laughs> are you holding by that? Yes, I am. <laughs> Well, as someone who's battled plantar fasciitis for almost a year, I don't think I'm going to be running any marathons. That's why we invented the wheel, so you don't have to run (laughs) 26 miles anymore. All right. Uh, It was at this point that Russell himself was starting to feel the effects of altitude. And according to one of his... Altitude sickness? Yes. And according to one of his childhood friends, Russell hated his own weaknesses more than he hated the weaknesses of others, and it would sometimes cause him to lash out. But it was correct that Schiff was not adequately healthy for the climb. He suffered from chronic indigestion, hmm. which saps a person's strength even at an altitude that they were used to, and certainly at a high altitude and extreme latitude where the troposphere is so thin and calories mean more. When I, If I have indigestion, I don't want to like walk, let alone climb. Climb a mountain. Yeah. By July 11th, the difficulty of what they were doing had started to bond the men emotionally, pairing off in different groups to eat, socialize, and sleep. 
And Wilcox is particularly credited for this due to his insistence on mixing up who worked together each day to force socialization. But the physical exertion was also taking a toll on them. And they had reached the hardest part of their climb, within 5,000 feet and five miles of the summit, but where the weather could change the most rapidly. The best treatment for altitude sickness is to rest until the body acclimates or, especially in severe cases, descending to below 10,000 feet. And remember, we're talking like 20-some thousand feet. And so they're probably like 15,000 feet up or thereabouts. Many climbers will rush to the summit when beginning to experience more serious symptoms, hoping they can get to where they want to go and then descend safely before the symptoms become life-threatening. Ooh, so like power through and then try and get out of there. This sometimes works. It sometimes does not. On July 13th, Wilcox and the original members of his team made plans for their summit attempt. With only a two-day weather forecast... Wilcox suggested they use the next day to pack up more supplies, then summit the day after that. This encountered encountered pushback from McLaughlin and Lutcherhand, who felt they were climbing too fast, and if a bad storm came, they'd be lacking in supplies. Wilcox, to his credit, allowed everyone to share their opinions without pushing his own idea. Eventually, it was decided that the two tailors... Russell and Schiff would stay in Camp 6, packing more food from one of their caches, and the others would take four days' worth of food each and summit on July 15th. Then the other four would make their summit bid on July 16th, so they're breaking into groups. The Colorado men were not included in the meeting, although they ultimately agreed with the plan. Ooh, that seems a little shady, shifty. Just a wee bit. Yeah. The deadly storm that was coming was beginning to develop to the west, with a high-pressure system originating over the Bering Sea and a low-pressure system moving north toward Denali. But to the mountaineers, the skies were clear and the temperatures consistent. While it was snowing on the mountains, there was nothing to suggest that, as Hall puts it in his book, quote, a meteorological event of epic proportions, end quote, Mm. was on its way. That night... Wilcox communicated via radio to park rangers who gave him barometric readings and Wilcox informed them that they were planning to summit in the morning. At the time, no other information was given between the two parties as reliable communication between the park and those on the mountain had, before the Wilcox expedition, been what Andy Hall calls, quote, almost non-existent, end quote. Hmm. There was no precedent for giving forecasts and regular weather updates especially since it was still relatively unknown exactly how the mountain and its topography interacted with storms. Mountain meteorology was not yet a confident practice, and to this day remains relatively unpredictable. Mountaineering experience would help prepare climbers for many situations, but Denali-specific knowledge would be required to survive a storm. And none of the 12 men on the Wilcox expedition had been to the mountain before. It would soon be them versus what many called a superstorm. Jeez. Yeah, I'm not sure I realized that there was a, a weather event involved in this. I thought they were just like bad climbers. So. Well, there's a weather event and they're bad climbers. Yes, it's perfect the perfect common, storm of yeah. everything. <laughs> the Camp 7 team woke up on July 15th to almost no visibility of Harper Glacier, which led to the summit, but they prepared anyway in the hopes that the weather would improve. It did. By late morning, the wind dropped to less than five miles per hour and the clouds disappeared. Then came the decision of who would summit. 
Snyder, Lewis, Schlichter, and Schlichter were ready to climb by 11.30, as was Joe Wilcox, but the others wanted to rest. Jerry Clark was in a condition to climb, but wanted to look out for the weaker climbers and pointed out that if he summited, it would leave three men in the camp, one shy of the minimum requirement set by the park. So remember, this is why the three Colorado men joined Wilcox in the first place. They, they were a foursome. One of their guys dropped out, so the other three joined. Oh, what? No, no, no. Just pause it. And we're back. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was at this point that most agree the situation should have been handled differently. So either everyone should have stayed together and all pushed for the summit, resting at 18,000 feet wasn't going to do much, or the stronger climbers should have gone on and the weaker ones should have actively descended. So no one should have been just sitting there. What was ultimately decided was that Russell, the two tailors, and Schiff climbed down to the lower camp and Clark, McLaughlin, Lutcherhand, and Janes stayed where they were. Wilcox, Lewis, Snyder, and Schlichter headed for the summit. So they're actually broken up into three groups at this mm-hmm. time. So one group is descending a little bit, one is staying, and one is summiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On it's like you know it's like in a horror movie where it's like you know the cliche don't split up to do anything. Mm-hmm. On their way, the summit team left wands to mark their trail, breaking them in half as they realized the on- they only had half as many as they needed. These wands would mark their trail for their descent, as well as the way up and back for those who would follow in the second summit attempt. If visibility prevents the wands from being seen, the next team was to wait at the last one they were able to find, while others on ropes would fan out to look for the next one. Wilcox radioed the visitor center at approximately 6.30 p.m., announcing that they'd reached the summit. They reported an absolutely beautiful view. Snyder said they were taking all kinds of pictures. They stayed on the summit for approximately an hour and a half and then began to head down, fatigue plaguing them all. When they reached the 18,000-foot camp... Schiff, the Taylors, and Russell were also returning from below, so they're coming back up. Russell, very sick and unable to carry most of his pack, which had been redistributed to the others. Uh, Nicole linked to a 360-degree view of the summit. We'll have to check that out and and share that as well. But um, here is a map of the path and the summits here. Okay. So the North Peak, the South Peak, Harper Glacier... Um, that's their high camp, the 18,000 okay. foot camp. And there's Denali Pass. Denali Pass. <laughs> Denali Pass. So, and I think these are like other, uh, expeditions routes. Sure. Here's another view of it. Okay. It's pretty just, nice. It's huge. Yeah. Well, of course it's huge. Oh, it's very that's beautiful. Very nice. Yeah. Very beautiful. Oh, here's here's the little our little ragtag crew. They all look like a bunch of kids. They are a bunch they of are. kids. They yeah. are. Yeah. I think there's what one or two 30 some year olds and Yeah, that's a couple it. of 30 year olds. The rest are all in their mid 20s. Isn't it funny how I I at first glance I thought this was from the 80s. Kind of looks like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the 60s. Another yeah, It is a, a really, really pretty yeah. mountain. Yes, it is. Obviously. Okay. Those are nice pictures. All right. All right, so Russell's getting sick. All right. The following day, intending to be the second summit day, had too many clouds and too much snow. 
Schiff and Steve Taylor were hiding their altitude sickness, and Russell was unable to keep food down. So the only reason he wasn't hiding it is because he couldn't stop barfing. Mm -hmm. On July 17th, Wilcox and the Colorado group headed down to Camp 6, where they'd stay until the second summit group joined them. This was done for two reasons. Jerry Lewis's altitude sickness. That's a great band name. Jerry Lewis's altitude sickness. Uh, and, uh, anyway. I have a feeling it's not going to be. No, it's not good. It's not good. And allowing those at the high camp to have more food as the available food at the high camp would be shared by less people. Snyder had invited Russell to come with them, but he refused saying that no one in his tent wanted to descend. Schiff came out of the tent shortly after saying that he did indeed want to go to a lower altitude. Schiff, Snyder, Lewis, Schlichter, and Wilcox would head down the mountain, five of the 12 men. Now, if you'll remember, when we did the count up top, five people survived, seven died. Mm. So I'm going to put my money on those five being Mm -hmm. the ones who survived because they're on their way down. Oh, (laughs) reminder here that five of the 12 men (laughs) survived the storm. I should always just read, continue, because whoever is writing is probably going to say exactly what I was about to say. That's, for the most part, been the case. (laughs) Wilcox, although suffering so greatly from altitude that he was unable to pack his own pack for the descent, had initially said that he would stay with the group up high. Clark said no. It would be better for him to head to Camp 6, taking the now weaker group with him. Wilcox made Clark promise to not take any unnecessary chances. Which, let's see, how old is Clark here? Oh, he was 31. He was okay. a little bit older. I was going to say, like, I was telling a 23-year-old not to take chances is well, a fool's errand. <laughs> plus telling somebody that when they're on the top of a mountain. Hey, don't take any chances. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already did. We are actively <laughs> we're, we're taking at, chances. We're at the chance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Clark promised him that if they couldn't summit that day, they'd follow the others down the mountain the following morning. We know some of what happened next as the park rangers were able to communicate with both groups for a time. Due to the geography of the mountain, radio communication between the two Wilcox groups was impossible, but both could talk to the rangers, which created a delay relaying information between the groups. As the second summit group approached the peak, Ranger Huber communicated that update to Wilcox. One discrepancy Wilcox asked about was that Huber reported six men in the summit party, but seven had been left on the mountain. It was determined that Steve Taylor had stayed behind in the tent. I would not want to be left alone. No. Hell no. I mean, even if I weren't feeling well. Especially if I wasn't feeling well. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, he should have gone down yeah. with the group that descended. Yeah. He had known all along that he wasn't going to, to summit. Any theories about why he stayed in the tent waiting to descend with the second group rather than going with Wilcox will always remain speculation. Yeah, that's, yeah, who knows? Maybe he just really hated Wilcox or one of the other guys or something. Yeah, because he's probably just overall just not thinking straight because he's sick. Yeah, not, yeah, that's true. It is hard to think clearly when you're not feeling well. Mm -hmm. That's true. One of the communications between the second summit team and the park rangers clarified that Steve Taylor had stayed in the tent and that those climbing were unsure of exactly where they were in relation to the summit because they were unable to find the wands. Mm. 
They reported that they knew they were close to the summit, however, oh, sorry, (laughs) they were close to the summit, however, and reconnected with Ranger Gordon Haber, maybe I mispronounced it, it's either Haber or Huber, the following morning, reporting that they bivouacked overnight. I'm so proud of myself for knowing the word bivouacked. It's spelled weird, that's why. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) McLaughlin asked Gordon if he could send his parents a postcard saying he was reporting from the summit. Oh, a a postcard saying he was reporting from the summit and would see them in a week or two. Haber asked McLaughlin to describe his current view. Haber said, quote, the view consists of four other guys at the moment. That's all. It's completely whited out. Hmm. We're sitting just below the summit. You can see the wands on the summit. That's all. End quote. Can you imagine? They actually made it at least most of the way to the summit, and they can't see anything. Right. So even though kind of the whole point of going up there, they didn't get to see. McLaughlin asked that Haber report that the five of them there had summited at the same time. Haber told McLaughlin that he would update Unit 2, Wilcox's group, with the information, including the confirmation of the whereabouts of Steve Taylor. If you just realize something, it will be addressed later. If you don't, don't worry, it will be addressed later. Did you catch what she was talking about? No. Uh, So McLaughlin asked that Haber reported that five of them had summited. There were seven men, Mm -hmm. one stayed behind. Now there's six men. But five are at the summit. Mm-hmm. Somebody's missing mm-hmm. or something. So it will be addressed later, apparently. The communication was growing slightly garbled due to weather and weakening batteries. Haber then asked McLaughlin when he wanted someone when he wanted someone to be standing by for their next radio call. McLaughlin said, quote, eight o'clock, I guess, end quote. Okay, eight PM, Haber responded. <clears throat> quote, We'll have someone here then. Be, lo- be looking forward to talking with you. Congratulations again. If nothing further, then this is KHG 6990 Eilson ba- Eilson? Eilson? Hmm. Base clear, end quote. McLaughlin said, quote, thanks very much. KHG 6990, unit one clear, end quote. A ranger was standing by at eight o'clock waiting for one of the seven men to reconnect. The call never came. Hmm. So there will be a lot of discussion of two camps from here on out. For the sake of not constantly translating feet to meters, 15,000 feet, 15, and I appreciate that, 15,000 feet is approximately 4,572 meters, and 18,000 feet is approximately 5,486 meters. After returning from Denali, Wilcox reported that he believed, when he did not hear an update from the Rangers at 8 p.m., that the high camp's radio had been damaged or lost as communication had been spotty for the better part of the day. He wanted to go to the high camp, but Snyder told him that with the high winds, the wands would likely have been dislodged, and it would be dangerous to ascend, even though at this time of the year in that part of the world, the sun set at midnight and rose at 4 a.m. This is July, after all. So land of the midnight sun and all Mm -hmm. that. Schlichter reminded Wilcox that they knew the other group had gotten to the top and likely got back to the bivouac (laughs) after I uh, bragged about knowing the word bivouacked site and fallen asleep. The following morning, when they did not see their teammates nor hear from them, Wilcox, Snyder, and Schlichter prepared to return to the high camp to search. Evidently deciding in a situation like this, it would be better to ask forgiveness than permission to climb as a group of three. 
Schiff and Lewis, weak but not critically so, stayed behind to rest and were told by Wilcox to wait two days for them to return. It took the exhausted threesome four hours to move three quarters of a mile due to wind, and then they turned back. At noon, Wilcox called from the camp at 15,000 feet to report his concern for the men camped at about 18,000 feet, who had then been out of contact for two days. By Friday, July 21st, winds at the 15,000-foot camp were reported to be between 50 to 60 miles per hour, or 80 to 97 kilometers, and at the 18,000-foot camp, about 80 miles per hour, or 129 kilometers. Hurricane force winds begin at 74 Jesus. miles per hour, or 119 kilometers. Another expedition on a different part of the mountain at the same time, who abandoned their summit attempt, reported winds nearly twice that. I'm not... 160 mile per hour winds. That's pretty fucked up. At 18,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah, that's really fucked up, yeah. (laughs) Uh, This expedition had to descend on their stomachs using ice axes and their crampons for traction to avoid being blown off the side of the mountain. Later, scientists would estimate the winds rushing through Denali Pass likely reached gust velocity of up to 300 miles Jesus, per hour. How is that even possible? I don't what know. The fuck? I don't know. That's like 482 kilometers. No, yeah. no, I don't know. Like where on earth, aside from this, is that wind speed I was ever? I say apparently here. Yeah, just in Denali Pass, I guess. Jeez. It's kind of miraculous that those guys who crawled on their stomachs even made it. Yeah. Because with winds like that... You don't have any other choice. No. Well, yeah, no. No way. The 15,000-foot Wilcox camp built snow walls and an igloo around their tent to brace against the storm. Which what? I'm just thinking, like, in that high of winds, would it, an igloo, I guess, no. if you build it right? I don't know. Um, They reported 15 to 25 foot or four and a half to 7.6 meter slabs of ice, quote, being picked up and thrown around like kites, end quote. So giant slabs of ice. Mm. The men repeatedly had to clear away snow from their tent to make sure it wouldn't collapse. Schiff asked Wilcox what the summit of Denali was like and asked if the other team could have fallen from it. Wilcox said nothing was impossible, but he didn't think so. Schiff said to Wilcox that his decision to leave Russell's tent and descend with the group and not attempting to summit with the second team was, quote, the most important decision I ever made in my life. Yeah. Quote, yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It's the whole reason he's alive. Uh-huh. You know what just struck me because of the dates? This is two years before the moon landing. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is relevant <laughs> other than we're watching that show yeah, on, that's, that's or, um, on <laughs> apple tv the following day july 22nd marked one week since the first summit team had stood atop denali so it's like been a week and they haven't seen these guys the blizzard was finally starting to subside and wilcox wanted to attempt to return to the high camp when the rangers at ailson asked if anyone in the group was willing to search wilcox said that he was but lamented that the others weren't wanting to go with him. Snyder told Wilcox to inform, uh, maybe it's Ailson? Anyway, that three of them were sick and therefore they couldn't attempt a search and rescue. 
Wilcox said he was not going to lie. Snyder realized that Wilcox was in denial about his own condition. He took Wilcox's radio and informed Eilson himself, saying that they needed to get down the mountain. The next morning, the men began their descent, struggling to move due to exhaustion and due to ice fields so dense that their crampons wouldn't hold. Around 12,500 feet, Jerry Lewis stopped. (laughs) It's just fun that Jerry Lewis is in this story. The name Jerry Lewis. There's nothing else funny about this. This is all horrible. So it's just fun to hear Jerry Lewis's name. Jerry Lewis stopped and told the others to leave him behind. Ooh, no, 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 no. Snyder convinced him to keep going. Very good. Around noon, the Mountaineering Club of Alaska, camped at 12,100 feet, or 3,688 meters, spotted the five men and brought them food and drink. And that at that point, it's just like, just it's, get these guys yeah, off the fucking exactly. mountain. Now that the five men were safe, Wilcox struggled with whether or not to ask the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center to launch a plane. While this would seem like the go-to response today, most climbers in the 1960s viewed rescue, especially by a plane, as a sign of weakness and embarrassment. Yeah, but you're alive and embarrassed. (laughs) You know, you're alive to be embarrassed. And as Wilcox was in denial about his own condition, he likely was also in denial about the inability to find the other men, dead or alive, even using aircraft. It's like in the, well, the movie Alive, I can't remember what the name of the plane crash was, but the... The, the Andes Mountains, flight, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. um, where they're talking about having to resort to cannibalism mm-hmm. if they want to survive, and the one guy's like, "I don't know if I could ever look at my parents again, knowing that I did that." And he's like, well, "I think they'd rather have you back alive, right? <laughs> like, yeah. they, like they don't. Yeah, I'm sure they'd be willing to set that one aside, right? You know, it's not like you just went out one day and oh, I'm just gonna eat a person." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, because your choice is, okay, you can't look them in the eye or you'll never look at them in the eye again. They'll never even see you again. Yeah. Yeah. But it is the 60s. It's like still 50s holdover macho men sort of culture, I would think, you know. Well, for these guys, sure. Because they're mountain climbers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm He did inform the Mountaineering Club that he would spare no expense when it came to the search for the other men. It was also unlikely that a rescue plane could have done much. For the single-engine craft available at the time, it was unrealistic to expect them to fly low enough and slow enough to search in cracks or crevasses. Search and rescue in the desert, for example, was much easier than in Denali Pass. George Hall and the Alaska Rescue Group decided that the Mountaineering Club would become the search party as they were already acclimated and in a convenient position. That's really, that's good of them to do. Eventually, someone realized that another member of the party had not been accounted for in the second summit Mm. party. Wilcox, Schiff, and the Colorado men were in the lower group, which had been rescued, and Clark, James, Lutcherand, and McLaughlin, and Walt Taylor were in the second summit group, while Steve Taylor waited in the tent. In the chaos, no one had immediately realized that Russell had not been named in either party. It is unknown if an argument resulted in him leaving the group or if he'd honorably left on his own, given his deteriorating condition, to not slow down the second group and deny them the summit attempt. It is unknown at what point he got separated or if he ever reunited with Steve Taylor at the high camp. Most believe his altitude sickness resulted in him attempting to descend on his own, as he'd threatened to do earlier on during the ski disagreement. Mm-hmm. 
On July 28th, the Mountaineering Club, or MCA, found Russell's summit pole, a sleeping bag, and a pair of socks buried in the snow. That's mm. not good. It was near a crevasse, the bottom of which could not be seen. It is believed by some, although there is no way to know for sure, that the crevasse is the final resting place of John Russell. As the MCA continued upward, they located the 18,000 or 17,900, depending on source, foot camp appeared. And when they called out, they received no response. Now, this just says trigger warning in big letters. So mm-hmm. something bad is coming. Mm-hmm. Mark McLaughlin's tent was spotted and against it, there was a man sitting upright wrapped around a pole. The condition of his body was both frozen and in a state of decomposition, as the body had almost certainly thawed and refrozen a number of times. Jesus. It is likely that this person froze to death. The rescuers moved away quickly, later lamenting that they hadn't taken photos, as this would have helped family members know who it was. I, however, do not blame them, as they were not trained in search and rescue and were traumatized by the discovery. That's fair. Some believe that this body is John Russell, and he was not in the crevasse near his equipment. I have not come across anyone who believes the body was anyone other than either Russell or Steve Taylor. Sure, it was one of them. Because those are the two guys who were not in the summit group. At this point... A small plane was circling Archdeacon's Tower just below South Peak at around 19,000 feet. The pilot dropped a message to two of the MCA climbers. It said, quote, I see something red over on the slope, end quote. That's true. What a, what a plane could do is reconnaissance. Like, Well, yeah, that's, I mean, because I was thinking about that before. I was like, uh, wouldn't you want to send a helicopter, not right. a plane? But, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's simply to signal... Like, hey, someone's looking out for you. From altitude, you can spot things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely. Uh, Yeah, we hate to tell you there's a 300 mile an hour wind coming. (laughs) Yeah. Might want to hunker down. (laughs) Despite the threat of an approaching storm, they went to search. They found another frozen body in a sitting position with one leg extended and the other leg tucked underneath the body. The MCA climbers reported this body appearing very relaxed could have passed out or slept and yeah below they could see another body these two frozen men had not been roped together one of the rescuers said it appeared as if the group had been trying to take a shortcut back to the camp schlichter believes the two men below archdeacon's tower were walt taylor and lutcherhand as they would have been strong enough to believe they could attempt that particular descent the other four bodies were never found, and none of the three that were located could be conclusively identified. Oh, God. When it became clear there would be no rescue, Wilcox joined George Hall in the superintendent's office, and they began the task of informing the families. Wilcox took the phone from Hall when he called Steve Taylor's parents to answer the questions they had. Wilcox felt particularly guilty about Steve Taylor, as Steve had graduated college only one month before, and Wilcox had convinced the park to allow him to climb after they questioned whether he was qualified enough. Mm-hmm. Andy Hall, the author who was five, the author of the book that um, Nicole used as her primary source, um, who was five at the time, remembers Wilcox dining with his parents that night. Andy was forbidden by his mother from asking Wilcox any questions. After dinner... George Hall continued calling the families, breaking the news, and then giving the phone to Wilcox. George Hall t- told Andy that it was the longest night of his life. That would be awful. Yeah. It would be just really awful. 
And I don't know. I mean, I wonder how much they told the family, but basically it's like they probably froze to death. I'm, they probably don't need to be told that. You know what I mean? Mm. Just say that they died during the climb. Mm-hmm. Well, really, there's one of two things. Either fell into a cre- crevasse. Uh-huh. Or froze to death. Or Basically. Both. Or fell off. Yeah. The mountain altogether, yeah. Ugh, yeah. On July 29th, Dennis Letcher and sister heard about the storm on Denali on, on the radio and phoned her father, Elmer, who immediately... You don't hear names like Elmer anymore, but in 1967. Who immediately headed for the airport to fly to Alaska. He called, ha, huh, Senator Ted Kennedy to ask for a humanitarian Air Force flight, which was denied. Uh, At this point, it was just before or after Chapel Clay. I was just going to, I was just going to, he's like, I'm busy. Oh, this is, this is before. Because we know Chapaquiddick happened right, right around when, the moon landing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like That's a day right. before or something That's like right. that. That's right. Yep. In uh, spoiler alert for, for all mankind. Well, it is a spoiler alert. So, it is so a spoiler no, alert. So well, I'm giving it. So I'm going to say. No. Oh, okay. Fine. Yeah. I won't say it. I'll say that Ted Kennedy <laughs> is involved role. in the show. Mm-hmm. Not not in real life. He's dead, isn't he? He, he is, is dead. dead. Yeah. Yes. Um, I did. Uh, one of our listeners did let us know that Henry Kissinger is indeed alive. He's like yeah. 97. Yeah. Well, you said that. I yeah, did. That's right. I was the one who didn't know that. <laughs> He's extremely old. Um, all right. So he didn't get the Air Force flight. At this point, it was almost certain that none of the men were still alive. A hope that further diminished by the day. Steve Taylor's parents took the same train to McKinley McKinley Park as Elmer Lutcherhand and George Hall did his best to keep the survivors and their families away from the increasing number of reporters as well as angry family members of the victims. After all, the survivors were still in relatively bad condition themselves, though it was clear they would all survive. The MCA descended after another day, feeling guilty that they were alive when most of the Wilcox members were dead, but also feeling anger and resentment towards the party. Bill Babcock, one of the members, reported in his journal that he weighed 200 pounds when he left and now weighed 160. Wow. That's Jesus. pretty rapid weight loss. And was angry about the demands that had been put on his body and the risk that they were what, asked what, to take for dead men. What the fuck did you... Th- what did he think? You know, like, oh, well, it's just going to be a walk. We're just going to go up and grab these guys and come back down. It may have been like a group decision and he didn't feel comfortable going against the group. I, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think what he's mad at is like these people who were not experienced, who made poor choices. Because, like, does that mean they deserved what happened no. to them? Not at all. Not but, at but all. But he made, but he but knew that. But there were go- some poor choices being made. Yeah. But, and he knew, he knew that going in. So you mm-hmm. can't... Well, and if they had found him alive, would he have felt the same way? You know, like... He might have, but he probably would have never said so. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. But, but yeah... Th- this, w- this whole... Mission's the wrong word. Adventure, I guess, is mm-hmm. just... It's misguided, like, from the get-go. The MCAs? Yes. Oh, I gotcha. Like, it was putting people at risk when it... Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, just the whole mountain climbing these guys itself. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Like, I, I do think it's unnecessarily da- like, well, no, it's dangerous, and therefore attempting it. If you're going you to better attempt be good it, at it, yeah, you better be extremely good at it. Yeah, 
like the free solo guy or something yeah. like so good at what you do. Um, and that still doesn't get, that still isn't guaranteeing no. anything. No, but when you're that good, you know better than to expect anybody to come after you. Yeah. Like, you know you're on your own. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, misguided. Misguided is what it is. Like, yeah. It's not ill-intended. No. But it's it's misguided, yeah. Babcock informed the park that the MCA would not be ascending again. They're like, yeah, fuck that. Elmer Lutcherhan demanded that George Hall send someone else up, the Air Force maybe, or the Army. George told him that he didn't have the authority to do that. Elmer demanded more searchers once again. Quote, I don't care who you send, but send somebody. I want my son. End quote. George Hall asked Elmer whose son he suggested they send. Mmm. Good question. Yeah. It's like we get it. Like you're upset, but... Oh, that's rough. That's rough. Because obviously the dad is just like emotionally wrecked. Mm-hmm. So he's not speaking from any sort of no. logical place. That's a good question to ask. So whose it son is. should we send? It is. To, to potentially to die? Son. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, wind up in the same condition that your son is, which is not alive. Yeah. I bet that sort of... Probably brought him back down to earth. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully. Mm. Not that, I mean, I, I don't blame the guy for feeling this way. No. Yeah, but, but still. Because I can certainly, the thing about, especially, I think possibly the worst thing that could happen to someone is a loved one who is not found, right? Well, it's it's different, like, if somebody just disappeared, like, they went out to get groceries uh, yeah, and never came back. Yeah, could be alive. That'd be one thing. Right, uh-huh. It's like, he went on the mountain and didn't come back. Like, you know where he is, you know? Yes, but, but I can also see, because this is something, I mean, different things hit people differently, right? This is something that kind of hits me. The idea of, like, we know probably where's about your loved one's body is, but we're just going to kind of leave it there. Now, for good reason, right, in mm-hmm. this case... Because it's too dangerous to get. Yes. But you can understand for, at least I can understand for a family member, how heart-wrenching that would be. I would I would almost but, but feel like they're also, being abandoned. Maybe, and maybe this culture hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. But I thought the culture was, you know, if you die trying to climb the mountain, you intentionally it's, get yeah, left there. Yeah. So that your soul makes Everest, it. Everest, they talk about that. I thought oh, that was on all of them. Like a, sort of like a, a spiritual belief almost. Yeah. yeah about, about it. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, like, these guys weren't, like, super experienced climbers, so maybe that wasn't really, like... I I do remember, now I'm remembering from the Everest thing we watched Mm -hmm. on Real... There were one of the rich person people died, and Mm -hmm. they were like, oh, we need to go up and get him, and they're like, yeah, fuck that. Like, if you want him, you go get him. Because it's endangering people's (laughs) lives to recover the body. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's... It's like he was a millionaire jackass, he died a millionaire jackass. Like, so what? Yeah, I think it, I think it's kind of one of those things. If you're gonna do something like that, tell your family, I may not come back down, and you need to be okay with that, yeah. and not try and get anybody, and to not get risk me. anybody else's life to just recover yeah. my dead body. Like, mm-hmm. what's the point of that? So you can put me in a coffin in the ground where nobody's gonna see me right. anyway. It's the the only reason is emotional. It's there closure. is no logical reason, it's, but it's there closure. is emotional reason yeah. for it. Yeah. Which, again, I understand. But, yes. Uh-huh. But not to the degree to risk somebody else's life. That's where it gets rough, right? Yeah. Is is that you are expecting someone else to endanger like, their it's life. It's like, okay, well, then you go get them. Yeah. 
you want them so bad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In August, George Hall approved $1,000 assistance for a group calling themselves the Humanitarian Climb, who wanted to find and bury the lost members of the Wilcox expedition. Okay. Five men and one woman ascended in the effort. They found no bodies, including the three that the MCA had located just weeks earlier, although they did find Russell's tent. But at oh, that point, there's yeah. like snow and wind and God knows what else. So The landscape's changed a little bit, probably. Yeah, uh-huh. A few weeks later, Hank Jane's mother, Helen, died of a massive heart attack at 49. Hmm. Parents of the victims continued to express their distress at not being informed sooner of their missing loved ones, saying they'd have spared no expense in the search. But considering Snyder, Schlichter, and Wilcox were less than two miles away from the upper camp during the storm and had made repeated failed attempts to find their lost team, even fresh men and women in better physical health, would have been unable to reach the lower camp in time, much less a high one. Yeah, it's it's not happening. The storm made it impossible for anybody to do anything, yeah. In his book, Andy Hall acknowledges that mistakes were made by climbers and rescuers alike, but, quote, as is often the case in a catastrophe, no one action can be singled out as the cause. Oh, of course not. No, it's a series of... In this case, however, one element had had an overriding effect on every human player in this story. The storm. Yes. End quote. If the storm had been shorter or less intense, all of the men more likely would have survived. It would have been, they'd have had a better shot. Yeah. With the duration and intensity of the storm and the newness of communicating from Summit to Ranger Station via radio, and with the overall capability of radios at the time, it was likely that all seven men had died before anyone even realized there was a problem. While the men found near Archdeacon's Tower were not roped together, the bodies had shown no sign of injury that would have resulted from a fall, and it was almost certain that they died of exposure. Yes, they froze to death. Yeah. So while it was... talking 300 fucking mile an hour wind. Yeah. I mean, you're not surviving that. Well, and if it's freezing already, the wind chill factor at 300 miles per hour. Yeah. I mean, I've felt what it's like. I mean, we would occasionally, like once or twice a year where I grew up, we would have what's called a wind chill advisory, mm-hmm. which means like the wind chill is like minus 40 or below. And I've been outside for that. And it's, I can't imagine anything colder than that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, especially being up on a mountain, you know, I like stepped outside, shoveled something off and went back into my house. Yeah. <laughs> no, no big deal. Yeah. I didn't go into like a makeshift tent and started to build an igloo and. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yep. Um, when I was a kid and we lived in central Minnesota, there was one day they canceled school, not because of snow, but because of wind chill. Mm-hmm. The wind chill advisory was negative 60. Yeah. Fahrenheit. Yeah. Happens. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and we're talking about uh, a wind chill of negative 300. <laughs> well, I don't think it works exactly no, mile for mile, but, but, but still. But it was probably, yeah, <laughs> Massive, Yeah. Anyway, it was likely that they were too exhausted and too worn out yeah. too worn out from altitude sickness to dig a snow cave and became frozen in their tracks. Mm. Yeah. Much analysis has been made of the bodies that had been found, mostly regarding if the one wrapped around the pole was Steve Taylor or jo- John Russell, and, trigger warning again, if the lack of decomposition on the bodies up top meant that they'd survive the early part of the storm. 
but forensic archaeologists in the area say that the time of death on the mountain could not be compared by rate of decomp alone. Mm -hmm. The body wrapped around the pole had been, at least for a time, in the tent, and when the sun hit the tent, it would have made the interior much warmer than than outside. He felt that the lack of decomposition of the bodies found at the higher altitude meant that they'd actually died early on and had frozen solid, Mm -hmm. which prevented them from ever thawing out enough to start decomposing in the brief warmer periods, especially since they were not in a tent that would warm them up faster. Now, this is really horrible to think about, but if you think, compare it, like, human flesh is meat, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So if you think about, like, chicken in a freezer or a steak in the freezer, like, it's not going to go bad and smelly while it's in the freezer. Right. So a dead body would not decompose if frozen. Some bodies have been found years later. Sure. Massively, uh, because they were frozen in, I'm kind of... I'm not making that up. I feel like it's real, but I can't, like, cite a specific case. I'm sure it's happened. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) At this point, it's happened to somebody. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Likely a mobster. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right. Or a a associate. Yeah. A mobster associate, yeah. In September of 1967, there was a meeting in Anchorage to try and figure out what happened and who was responsible. There was a lot of back and forth about what contributed the most to the disaster, how much blame was on people versus nature, and if enough was done in the rescue effort. Debate on these topics continue to this day. It's also unsure exactly how much bickering and animosity truly existed between the two combined teams. While there was fighting and petty snark and the Colorado men were left out of meetings, Schlichter reported afterward that overall he didn't see him and the other two men in his group as two separate from the others. Wilcox had divided tasks fairly evenly, and he climbed with members of the original Wilcox expedition as much as he had the Colorado teammates. Snyder said, quote, We were three guys from Colorado who were not an expedition. We were part of the Wilcox expedition, end quote. Uh, For anyone keeping track, Wilcox, Schiff, and all three Colorado men survived. So only Wilcox and Schiff from the original group actually survived. Mm. Today, Wilcox lives in Seattle, Washington, and in, oh boy, Kailua, Kona, Hawaii? Sure. Your mom would know how to pronounce that, probably. Where he teaches astronomy and oceanography. He has since climbed... Oh, God, he climbed again. Of course. He has since climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He reported to Andy Hall that he felt crippling survivor's guilt for 12 years after the Wilcox expedition, blaming himself as much as the victim's families did. And that guilt was a major contributing factor to him getting a divorce from his first wife. He said there were times he wished he had gone back to the high camp alone, knowing he would have died, but feeling like he should have gone anyway. Well, that's classic survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. Now he has accepted that he wouldn't have been able to save the others and there would have been no good that would have come from a suicide mission. He has never returned to Denali. He wrote his own book about the climb, White Winds, which he told Andy Hall was a therapeutic process for him. Howard Snyder, as of the 2014 publication of Hall's book, was the director of a museum in Alberta, Canada, and also wrote his own book about the climb called The Hall of the Mountain King, just a few years after the tragedy. The book is extremely critical of Wilcox, but in talking to Andy Hall, he said, quote, Joe is a real convenient target, but that's the nature of being the leader. He has been, I think, attacked probably unfairly, probably more than anyone else by himself, mm. end quote. He and Schlichter, who went on 
to serve in Vietnam as a rescue pilot are glad they climbed Denali, quote, before it became overrun with people, end quote. That's true. These guys did actually see the summit. Sure, yeah. So, Schlichter said his experiences in search and rescue in Vietnam impacted his life more than the Wilcox expedition. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> yes, I get that. <laughs> Which he doesn't think about much. So, basically, his earlier trauma was... Traded out for a yes, different one. a whole bunch more afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis and Schiff do not speak publicly about the experience. Of the men interviewed in for Hall's book, he reports that Snyder's memories seem the clearest. They most closely, and very closely, even more than 40 years later, match the accounts from the time. A quote from Andy Hall at the conclusion of his book. Quote, If I have learned anything through the process of writing this book, it is that memory is fleeting and flawed at best. Some of the subjects I interviewed are sure they remembered things clearly, yet their accounts don't match the documentation and, in many cases, their own journals written at the time. Others think their memories are flawed, yet they match up almost perfectly with the documentation I was able to find. A few think they are fuzzy on details, and follow-up research shows they're right. Rarest is the one who believes his memory is accurate and follow-up confirms he is right. Unquote. <laughs> At the time it occurred, the Wilcox tragedy was the worst climbing accident to occur in North America and the deadliest accident to take place in a national park. The regional director asked George Hall to ban climbing in the national park and Hall refused. He had become a friend of the climbing community and referred to them as, quote, people who just want to climb the damned mountain, end quote. George Hall died in 2005. Hmm. As reported by the National Park Service in 2019, a total of 1,226 people climbed Denali, 60% of whom were from the United States. The most popular state of origin was Washington, followed by California. Of the international climbers, Canada was the most common country of origin, followed by Poland, of all places. That's interesting. The average trip length was seven... What's going on in Poland, really? I mean... I'm sure a lot. It's a country. Yeah, probably not. The, there's pigeons to see in an exhibit, yeah, right? There you go. The average trip length was 17 days, as it had been the year before. The average climb for the sorry, the average age of a man climbing Denali in 2019 was 39, and the average age of a woman was 37. The youngest climber to attempt Denali in 2019 was a 17-year-old boy, and the oldest a 75-year-old woman. 16% of the climbers were women. of those women summited. The most common summit month was June with 500. 153 summited in May and 73 in July. These numbers show that 59% of climbers made it to the summit of Denali in 2019. And this is in modern times. Mm -hmm. 2018 and 2019 both reported no fatalities, though about a dozen groups required some sort of assistance and seven people developed what was considered traumatic injury. I plan to go to Denali National Park in two or three years' time. I will not be climbing the mountain. Hell no. <laughs> that was Nicole, obviously. And that was the rest of the story of the 1967 Wilcox Expedition. Research done by Nicole. Yes, thank you very much, thank Nicole. You. That was well, excellent. script by Nicole. Yes. yes. Yeah, no, you couldn't pay me to... I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll hike up to the top oh, of the mountain. Yeah. Well, we've gone to uh, Hanging Rock. Yeah. That's pleasant. Yeah. And it didn't require, like, climbing gear and uh, repelling gear <laughs> no. and, like, other shit. Like, that's that, that's 
like when I see those documentaries or I see those movies and they're just like, oh, I, like where did you learn to do that? You well, know what I mean? You get trained, but, I imagine. But you kind of have to do it on the. Where else are you going to do it? Like on well, the job. Well, you do it with other right. experienced clients. Yeah, I, I guess, but still, idea. it's like. Yeah, there's not like a um, a a fake mountain. Yeah. I mean, there, there are climbing walls. There right? are now. Yeah. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and here's like the whole thing to me. Like, I did a lot of stupid shit growing up, but it was also fun. <laughs> Yeah, this doesn't like seem fun. none of this seems like any fun, <laughs> the like views whatsoever. Would be pretty breathtaking, I imagine. We have to look at that three sixty video. I'll look at a fucking satellite image. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, really, I don't need to see it. Like with my own, t- like, I'm sure the top of Everest is lovely, but I'm not going to kill myself trying to get up there or get back down trying to see it for all of what ten minutes. Well, an hour and a half they were for up these there. guys because this is the <laughs> '60s. But I'm talking about you know. Well, it they yeah they did say it's pretty crowded now so yeah, yeah it'll be a and it's yeah maybe. it's not like you can get once you get up there like it's also dangerous at the top it's not like you can just hang out right you know and then you still have to get back down exactly <laughs> yeah none of it like i where's the fun i i see nowhere i, I agree fun. with you i agree with you I, I it's not my bag either it is not at all but it's like if you insist on doing it like you better be completely prepared yeah like, expert level prepared. And I don't even know how you get to that. Like, how do you get to that? I mean, you climb over and over again, obviously, but... Yeah, um, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. I, it's... I would I would say, in general, I wouldn't recommend No. <laughs> to our audience, if do you don't not know... recommend. If you don't know this already, don't climb mountains. Now, I think visit the park and look at the mountain. Yeah, do that. That's fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, or even going a little ways yeah. up, right? Plus, you know? at this point, somebody has already been up there. Who cares? Like, it's not a big deal anymore. Oh, but wait. <laughs> Were they the first? <laughs> to go to backwards. S- uh, let's see. <laughs> what did he say? So do it backwards, like <laughs> upside down or something? <laughs> yes. It has not been climbed blindfolded or backwards, nor has any party of nine persons yet fallen simultaneously into the same crevasse. Well, that almost happened on this. Oh, my God. Jesus. Oh. That's still my favorite part of the story is this. That's the only fun part of the story. It is the only fun part of the story. It's terrible. It's terrible. And I bet the guy, I wonder if he knows what wound up happening. I, I would guess that he does. Oh, the guy who yeah. said that? The <laughs> Smithsonian guy or yeah. whatever? Um, Museum of Science, Washburn. Yeah. Um, he probably <laughs> feels like he probably feels like a bit of a dick after. <laughs> I would think so. Or maybe he feels vindicated. Maybe. And like, see? Maybe he's like, see, this is what happens when you're just like chasing. A, yeah. yeah, maybe. A stupid Guinness Book of World, like, and like, who cares? No, yeah. Nobody cares. Yeah, it's. I follow the Guinness Book of World Records on TikTok, and some of the things it's like. It's fucking stupid. So, somebody, it was like the. I've. Most melons cut in half. Most and... tissues used in less than a minute. <laughs> like, who fucking gives a shit? I know. Like, I mean, really. I know. Like, I remember, uh, like, a friend of mine, like, for Christmas one year, got, like, a Guinness Book of World's Record book, and uh-huh. he was, like, so excited. I'm like, this is fucking stupid. I'm it, like, it, it, it. Like, I who, remember those books, too. I'm like, the who, little paperback. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Like, none of, literally none of this matters. I would say things like, well... Like, first man on the moon, and... Yeah, uh, that's a pretty big deal. Um, or even, like, the 18th guy on the moon. That's still a pretty big still deal. still a pretty big deal. Or, I, I can also see things like 
first woman to XYZ or first person of color to XYZ. I, like those I guess are, I can't even see those. Those are like glass ceilings and barriers broken. Those are those are major things in under certain conditions. But um but uh, <laughs> but yeah, no some of those get that get pretty ridiculous and it's like okay, then what? Like <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay. <laughs> Like, if somebody came uh-huh. up to me, like, if I was just, like, at a bar or get-together, went, like, hey, I climb, like, I'd be, like, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, then. <laughs> cool. Like, I think you're a fucking moron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Guess what I didn't do? Mm-hmm. That. I didn't risk my life <laughs> yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure we'll hear from Asshole who left us a bad review for dogging on people who climb Everest back on our 1996 Everest uh, episode. Uh, maybe we'll hear back from them. I, I haven't changed my opinion. Same. <laughs> Same. If anything, I feel this proves it. <laughs> like, yeah. this, this further bolsters our case. And, and again, like, I get the whole adventure. I, I had, at one point in my life, anyway, had an adventurous bone in my body that's mm-hmm. not quite there anymore. <laughs> but, uh... I mean, just some things just aren't fucking worth it. I mean... Yeah. So you do it and you survive and it like like it's just, you know what I mean it's just mm-hmm. like then what I do I yeah. do it does your life feel more complete <laughs> maybe you know yeah I don't know I guess we're just not we're old and crotchety and not very adventurous huh I'm not anymore yeah that's for sure I never was <laughs> <laughs> like there was a time in my life that I definitely would have gone skydiving and there's like mm. a there's like a skydiving place like right up the road it's not that far from really her. where yes. do they go um i think they i think they um off of that air there's a small little regional airport oh, like next okay, to yeah. the mm-hmm. next to the international airport mm-hmm. i think that's where they take off from okay but I it's like where a, they drop i'm not sure but it's called i think it's called skydive raleigh something mm-hmm. like that but it's like a pretty like it's a lot a, of people do it's it. a legit yeah. business yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, like, I would have done that at one mm-hmm. point. Like, definitely in my 20s. I'm like, I want to do that one day. And I'm like, and now I'm like, nah. Well, we couldn't even talk ourselves into that Vegas faux free Well, we couldn't thing. do it that day, That's remember? right. There was a wind advisory yeah. that day, yeah. That's true. But would you have done it if we... I think I would have. Yeah? Yeah, I think I would have done that I may one. have. Yeah. I may have. I'm not sure. It's funny, um... On my first day, there was a staff at work. There was a staff meeting, and we had to play like get to know you games. Me and another coworker who it was his first day, and one of the things was like a lightning round of questions about us. And it was like, "Do you prefer cats or dogs?" You know, like little things like that. And one of the ones that they asked me, and you're like trying to answer it as quickly as possible. Was, Are you a virgin? <laughs> Imagine if somebody did ask that. Though. Really? <laughs> no, I said imagine if somebody. Oh, asked that. oh, oh, oh! I thought like at one of your MC, like <laughs> no. your old Worldcom jobs or something, some no. dick did that. <laughs> I would have been the dick. I yeah, would've. you would have been. That's why we're, we were not together back then. That and I would have been like fifteen, but whatever. Yeah, that's, that's um, a little side issue. <laughs> but the question, one of the questions I got asked was, "Would you rather go on a roller coaster or go skydiving?" Yeah, roller coaster. I said skydiving. Really? It was it was weird because I fucking hate roller coasters. I hate roller coasters. I can't even tell you the last time I was on one. So I've only been on one in like the past 
25 years and it was at the state fair so yeah that's that's one dangerous thing but all i remember was getting jarred from one side to the other i'm like how does nobody just get whiplash constantly because it's it's because you're at the state fair roller coaster maybe maybe it was just a bad (laughs) roller coaster (laughs) i mean and i did not that was the worst part that was the unpleasant part i didn't like the drops either but I kind of feel like with skydiving, because your parachute deploys at some point, you're not free falling anymore. The free fall would be terrifying. Well, I, see, that's the thing. I think you would get used to the free fall. Because you, you can't stay that hyper yeah. aroused for, for so long. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's possible. And I've jumped off things high enough where you start to get that rush, but then mm-hmm. you, you know, hit the water. Or yeah. Something. So it's not a cut. But I'm wondering if it feels like if it's a constant rush or mm-hmm. if you just get used to it. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna guess the latter. I'm gonna guess you get used to it, especially if you're somebody that does it. I mean, a lot of people, often. even people who are scared, you see video footage of them, and they eventually, after they stop screaming, they're like, "Thumbs up!" Yeah. You know, they they kind of do seem to enjoy it after a while. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe one day. Who knows? Like I'm just too, for, my, words... for my fiftieth birthday, I'll go skydiving. <laughs> in the words of uh, Murtaugh, "I'm too old for this shit." Yeah, and I'm even older than you. <laughs> yes, you are. All right. So, shall we wrap it up? Let's do. Well, that was part two of the 1967 Wilcox edition. Expedition. Expedition. <laughs> My God. Uh, research by Nicole. By Nicole. Thank, Thank you, you Nicole. very much again. Script it was by Nicole. excellent. Um, very well done and very long. <laughs> thorough. We got two episodes <laughs> yes. out of it. It was very thorough. Which is helpful when I'm like trying to get my schedule under control (laughs) and this has been another edition of all bad things i'm david i'm rachel we will see you next week